right, grab your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and uh, it is going to be a cool day, literally and functionally, uh, out on the property getting all those plants in, and uh, I don't know if you've been over to the building lately, but a lot has happened, exciting stuff. All right, you ready? Okay, it just feels like everybody's a little bit on spring or fall break still here, so... uh, We're jumping into God's word. We're halfway into walking through the first three chapters of Revelation. As you know, we are walking through these first three chapters, talking about the seven churches as we're preparing to move into a brand new sending base place facility coming up and helping us to get ready for that. What kind of church should we be and not be? And uh, then Lord willing, as I talked about, we're uh, hoping to pick up chapter four through the rest of the book then. Um, actually more towards 2015. But so far, we've worked through chapter 1, and in chapter 1, we saw, as I talked about it, the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1. And uh, we see no Mr. Rogers neighborhood Jesus in chapter 1. We don't see poor carpenter's son. We don't see the hippie with the sandal talking with people. Now, this is the same Jesus, but do understand this as we've been talking about. This is the full glorified Jesus Christ. And this is full majesty, full deal. This is the king. This is the priest. This is the judge. This is the Lord Jesus. And I would just say hashtag face down. That's the reality of John chapter 1 in it. That's the Jesus that we are meeting there. And we're now in chapters 2 and 3. Walking through there, we're still in chapter 2. But I just want to kind of get ourselves, as we get ready to jump in, get ourselves set up here. Uh, All of the seven churches have a common addressing that takes place. And as Jesus is talking with each of them, he has, first he starts out with an attribute statement. And it's an attribute statement about who he is. It's tied to uh, chapter one. It's just one of the coolest things. John writes down all these attributes of Jesus that he sees. And then here, if you have a red letter edition, you see Jesus is the one who's speaking all of this. And he picks one of those attributes about himself and applies it, gives it to each church uniquely a unique attribute for a unique situation. And we're, we're observing each of those. We will big time today on this as well. Then right after the attribute statement, he starts with a word. In the Greek, it's oida. The first two words in, in it are I know, I know. It's I know absolutely, I know fully. It's not a, I've come to know or I got an email and someone told me about knowing It's he knows fully, absolutely uh, some things about each of those places. And I just say this, Jesus knows. I mean, he knows, he knows absolutely, he knows fully. As we've already talked about, there's an aspect of that where that's convicting. It's like, whoa, dude, Jesus knows. But there's another part about that that is so cool. Hey, friends. Jesus knows. I mean, he, he knows everything that's going on. He knows. So here we are, local church number three. Hey, Pergamum, verse 12, I know. I wonder what it is that Jesus knows. Watch this clip and let's... 
No! Harry, no! Don't look at the light! I can't help it. It's so beautiful. We're going to be seeing that clip a couple more times. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for the time together to sing, to serve, to be together, to be in your word. Thanks. Lord, I pray as we learn about this church in Pergamum that uh, you would just show us more of you. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about you revealing you. And I pray we would see more of you so that we would be able to think more of you and live more of you. I thank you for these people in Pergamum. Wow, they had quite a setting as we're going to learn. I pray we would learn from them. We as a church would be increasingly about you. Thank you, king, priest, judge, and Lord. In your name we pray, amen. All right, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, ready? Ready? All right, let's roll. Here we go. Verse 12, chapter 2, the church in Pergamum and the angel to the messenger of the church in Pergamum. Again, I don't think this is a guardian angel. We've talked about this. I don't think this is a guardian angel. I don't think this is a little flappy wing thing. This is a little golden wrapple round thing. Angelos, the word that's used, also talks about human messengers. I think in the context of what we're talking about here, this is a representative member of the plurality of leadership from the church there to the messenger of the church in Pergamum, right? Here's the attribute statement. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay, let's pause there. Let's pause there. Okay, I've noted about the statement that he begins with each of these. And here it's the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Notice it's not dull. It's not one-edged. It's not zero-edged. And it's also not a butter knife. It's a sharp two-edged sword. I think a viable question to start out with is why this attribute? Why does Jesus use this unique attribute for this group of people? Uh, Why this attribute? And by the way, since this is about coming to learn more about Christ, what does the sharp two-edged sword thing tell us about who Jesus is? Well, let's let scripture uh, answer scripture, okay? So look at chapter 1, verse 16, Revelation 1. I'm also going to have it up on the screen here. Revelation 1, verse 16, it says, From his mouth, Jesus' mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword. Got that? It's like from his mouth, (laughs) comes a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, It's a mouth thing. Uh, Another verse uh, you can just see on the screen, uh, Hebrews 4, 12. It says, For the word of God... The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And one more, Ephesians 6, 17. Uh, This is in the context talking about the armor of God, you know, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, that kind of stuff. And it also says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
Okay. So just even from those three verses, the sharp two-edged sword, uh, that's referring to the word sourced from God. The word sourced from God. Um, It's spoken, declared words from God from his mouth, and they're living, and they're active words, they're piercing words, they're powerful words, they're discerning the soul words. And they never get dull. Never They never get dull. They never get outdated. Oh, but it's so old. It's so outdated. No, no, no. Never gets outdated. It's never outdated. And it never goes unpowerful either. In fact, let me add this in this, because I think this is really intriguing. Just ponder this. Maybe talk about it at lunch. Ephesians 6.17. It says that they are the words that the Holy Spirit uses. Think about that. We commonly live in a day and age where it's like, you know, God just, Spirit of God just give me words. Well, what words does the Spirit of God use? God the Father words, God the Son words. Second Peter chapter 1. We have everything we need for life and godliness. You don't need anything more. We've got everything we need for life and godliness right here. And in this, it's just, it's just really a stunning thing. The Spirit of God, when he wants to use active, living, piercing, powerful, never dull, never outdated words, he uses God the Father words, God the Son words. And if the words of God the Father and God the Son are good enough for God the Spirit, how about this? How about they're good enough for me and you and us? When the spirit wants to swing a sword, he swings God's word sword. Okay? That's the sword he swings. And I bring all this up because we live in a day and age where this is like viewed as out. And I want to say all of this points to the fact, and in Pergamum, that this is the two-edged, sharp, sharp two-edged sword. That's the attribute of Jesus. The, the, the words of God, this so highlights the supremacy of Scripture. And that's why we are Harvest Bible Chapel. Because we hold to this thing, and, and we want to do the swing, the sword, and not butter knives. Okay, you don't want to come here and hear what I have to say. You want to come here and hear what God's word has to say, right? And that's why in this, we make God's word the center of thing, and we make resources that take us to God's word the center of what we do. Okay? But Doug, the the insightful words of Freud and Maslow and Rogers and Darwin and Carl Sagan and Stephen Hawkins and Richard Dawkins and Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan and Shakespeare and George Orwell and theologian blank hear me. God's word are superior. Okay, it's superior. Let me, let me illustrate this way. Okay. Man's words. Okay. Man's words. Butter knife. Is a butter knife useful? It is. It is for certain things. But I want to tell you, just even as a guy, like, I want this baby, right? 
I mean, this is what we're talking about here. God's words, man's words. We choose this, okay? That's the point of it. And when Jesus comes in and he says, listen, I am the one who speaks from the sharp two-edged sword. In comparison to this, it's like, pay attention because this is speaking. All right? Now, why would he say that to this church? Why does this church need to hear that particular attribute about it? Well, before we get there, let me just add one more thing. Whenever in scripture we see this context of this sharp two-edged sword conversation, it's generally in this idea that something heavy is about to be dealt with. That there's kind of an aspect of judgment is looming. Did you ever get called down to the principal's office on the little voice box in your classroom? I don't know if they do that anymore. Probably don't because that'd be embarrassing and whatever. I remember it, and I remember it in a particular day because it was third or fourth grade, and all of a sudden, the box made a noise. So this is the principal's office. Um, Ms. Boyd, would you please send Doug Helmer to the office? <laughs> True? It's just like crud. I knew this was not like, because we need someone to come and help us make like paper airplanes or things. Okay, it's just like, and everybody's looking like, Elmer's getting nailed. He's getting in trouble. And I was, I took a banana and I went down the piano keys in the music room. I was an all-American kind of a kid. I never did stuff like that. I was possessed for a little bit. And I got the call, and I kid you not on this. Our principal was the neatest lady, and she was very kind to me, scared the liver out of me. But she knew that this was just not normally me. But her name was Dr. Phoebe Winky. Kid you not. So had to go down and see Dr. Phoebe Winky. <laughs> but when Jesus says... These are words from the sharp two-edged sword. It's kind of like this. This is the principal's office. Hey, Pergamum, please come and see Principal Yeshua. Okay. That's what's happening here. So they get to Principal Yeshua's office. And what are the first two words? He says, verse 13, what are they? I know. As we've talked about, he starts every one of his addresses to all seven churches that way. I know absolutely. I know fully. Oh, I'm already shaken. I know. I know. Let's look at the next. I know where you dwell. Okay. <laughs> There's a really creepy part about this, isn't there? I know where you live. Now, there is a convicting thing in it. There is a spooky thing in it. And I'll just say it this way quickly. We cannot hide from Jesus. You can't hide. And yet we try to. You can't fool him. You can't fool him. Hey, he knows. He knows absolutely. He knows fully. He knows. But, but 
actually, I think what's said here is really cool and comforting. Not just a convicting thing in it, but I think this is mainly a comforting thing. In other words, it's like the Jesus of Revelation knows. He knows where you live. I just, hey, he knows where you live. He knows, we'll see here in just a sec. He knows the context of the setting in which you live. Friends, he knows. Sometimes don't you feel like, does anybody know? Does anybody have any idea? The catastrophe that's taking place in my family or the, the hurt that I'm going through right now or the, the confusion and just what's going on in my life. Hey, he knows. He knows. And look what comes out of this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Boy, that sounds a bit odd. Okay, let's get a little bit of geography on the city of Pergamum here, okay? Information on them. Uh, so you can see the map up there. This is where these seven churches are at. Hopefully here you can see uh, Pergamum, third one up, yeah, where the arrow is. So Pergamum, a little bit about it, has been Asia's capital for about 250 years. It's a major city. Uh, much of this city is built up on a hill that towers some thousands of feet over the plain. That's a big deal. Just think about it. It's a powerful city on a hill. You know, if you're living on a hill and you're powerful and you're looking out over, over everybody, aren't you just kind of naturally just going like, yeah, baby, right? You know, it's kind of like if we beat Denver tonight. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yes. Yeah, Pastor Eric wearing his Bronco shirt. But it's just, you kind of just are like, cool. And, and this is what's kind of some of the setting is here. Also with them, this is a, a highly intellectual city, just the center of so many things. Uh, they had some 200,000 handwritten volumes in their library. I mean, like what library in smaller towns has 200,000 books? They had 200,000 volumes of handwritten stuff that just gives you an idea of the kind of city that it is. It was a center of Greek culture, a center of Greek learning and of medicine and science. It was also an important center for the worship of various gods and with what took place. And I won't even get into that. I don't think it's quite as important with what we're doing today. But they were also with that, they were like this hub of the emperor worship of the day, which was massive. So in Pergamum, emperor worship was the thing. There were a number of other things going on, uh, but that was in the day and age. So what is this Satan's throne thing? Well, some think it's uh, associated with the worship of one of the gods that they worship there. Uh, some think it's referring to kind of their emperor worship thing in that context. Some other commentators say that it's kind of generally referring to the powerhouse of Rome in that day. Um, I, I'm one where it's not a pen issue, but I, I'm one where I think it leans more towards this idea of totality. That, 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 that the totality of Pergamum was a beachhead for Satan. Let me put it this way. Satan can only be one place at one time, right? Okay, listen, there's God, all the omnis, okay, omnipresent, he can be all places, all times. Then there's Satan, he can't be. He's an angel, fallen angel, he can be one place at one time. And I think this is referring to Satan parked his sad behind at Pergamum. Okay, that's where he like perched himself. He's like, I'm going to sit my sad behind here, kind of, if you will, on that picture, and I'm going to throne it here for a while. Because if I want to throne it somewhere, I'm going to throne it somewhere big, somewhere that has a big, broad impact. And think about that. 
That's where the church of Pergamum lived, right there. Right where Satan parked his side behind. They lived right there in it. I'm telling you, this was a city of massive spiritual warfare. And this local church was there in it. I wonder how, they, how they're doing in all of that. Well, well let's look at verse 13. Okay, I'm going to kind of paraphrase it a little bit, expand it out to kind of get some of the feel, the flow of the text in it. Jesus says, I, I know absolutely, I know fully where you are presently dwelling. And it's where Satan is parked his sad behind. Yet you are presently, actively, and you have been continuously holding fast to the name of me. Bam, that's cool. And you have not denied or you have not disowned the faith of me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you or martyred among you. And I think Jesus finishes this kind of sentence here by, you live where Satan has presently and actively parked himself. The church of Pergamum in this setting was holding fast to. That's an important word. It's holding fast onto something. It's actively grasping onto something. It's taking a hold of something. Let me put it this way. They Velcroed themselves to the name of Jesus. Way to go, church. Way to go, church. Velcroed to Jesus. And I was with this, it's not something that just happens. You just don't pray, God, may we be Velcroed to you. And then you wake up the next day and boom, everybody's Velcroed to Jesus. No, this is in the present active, continuous kind of a form of it. You are working at it. You are producing that. You, you are putting feet and legs and, and your mind in this whole thing. You, you are the kind of church that is ongoingly, you have been taking hold uh, of my name. Cool. Hey, Harvest, we need to be that. We need to be a holding fast to the name of Jesus Church, right? No, let's one more try because I'm not convinced. We need to be a holding fast to the name of Jesus Church, right? We do. We do. Also, with what we've just read, the church in Pergamum, it said, is not denying, it's not disowning their faith in Christ. Way to go. Way to go, Pergamum. Hey, Harvest, we need to be a not denying the faith church. Right? We do. You know, we don't presently live in a martyr, being martyrs for Christ's world here in our country, yet. Um, but I would just ask you to consider the ways that we can deny the faith. Life gets hard. God doesn't care. And we can deny the faith. Maybe not to death, but we can deny the faith to life. We don't want to be that, do we? And we need each other in that. We need each other. It's arm in arm, side by side, life on life, if we're going to be that kind of a church. 
So Jesus makes this finishing statement about where they live. He knows they're a local church where Satan is parked his behind there. And bless their hearts. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not, you do not uh, deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse fourteen the big butt. Remember that was with the church in Ephesus. Smyrna didn't have that. But, but I have a few things against you. Now, let me just note this. I don't think Jesus was saying the things he said right prior to this kind of in a, okay, I'll butter them up. I'll make them feel good about themselves. But this is now really what I want to say. I think what he was saying right prior was the truth. He's like, way to go, way to go, church, way to hold fast to my name, way to not deny the faith, way to go. But, but while I'm here, while I'm talking to you, we got to address something here. You're holding fast, but let's keep reading. But I have a few things against you. You have some. How many? You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have how many? Who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what I'm not going to do right now is I'm not going to go into the whole teaching of what Balaam teaching group was thinking and what the Nicolaitan group was saying. It's just, just honestly, it's just not, uh, it's not relevant or needed for what we're going to talk about. It's just the fact that that's going on. And so it says here, uh, you Pergamum, you have some. Uh, that means not everyone. Uh, that means some. Uh, well, how many? <laughs> we don't know, just some. Uh, some are in the church. It's not all, and it's not the majority, but it's some. That means that more are not doing something, but some are doing something, okay? That's important to understand. And it says some are holding to the teaching of Balaam. And it also says some are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So here's what's happening. Some, instead of holding uh, truly, uh, holding fast to and grasping a hold of and, and grabbing on to the name of Jesus... Uh, some are bringing some other stuff in. Some are grabbing a hold of Jesus and also their other arm is grabbing a hold of a few other things. Uh, They're pulling something in on what's going on. They're they're grabbing a hold of some wrong teaching, some heretical teaching, some unbiblical teaching. I just, newsflash, newsflash. Everyone grabs a hold of a life theology. Everyone. Uh, you may even be here today and go, I think what you guys are doing, this is just stupid. I think you're stupid. I think this is whatever on that. You can do that. You can do that. That's, that's, we love you. Okay. But do know this. Everyone in this room does hold on to a theology. No, I don't. No, yeah, you do. Everything you do in life comes from a theology that you have. It comes from a thinking that you have. Why do you do what you do? You do what you do because you want what you want. Let me say it this way. I want what I want, so I think what I think. And I think what I think, therefore I do what I do. 
And everybody does that. Everybody has a base theology. So my question is, in all of this is, so what is your life doctrine right now? Well, it's Jesus and following God's word. Let me just lovingly push as I've pushed on myself this week. Is that just by word or is that by reality? Does Jesus show up in your marriage? Does Jesus show up at work? Does Jesus show up in your relationships? Does God's word permeate you and how you process where you're at, whether you're single, married, alone, divorced, whether you're empty nester or whatever, widow, whatever it might be? Does Jesus, does God's word permeate the reality of who you are and what you do? Because if you really want to know what you believe, look at what you do. You can say you believe one thing, but if you do something else, the fact is you believe what you do. I think this is just a great time to kind of step back and ask myself, what do I believe? Because you do believe something. You do. In Pergamum, there's kind of a four false god system there. So I'm going to kind of lay out here, uh, this is just me, my thinking on it. I'll be very clear on that. Uh, Here's what I think are four false gods of our day. Number one, pluralism. Hey, just believe whatever you want. Just believe whatever you want because always go to God. (laughs) If that's true, God is an absolute schizophrenic freak. Because what the Quran says is totally different than what the Bible says, which is totally different than what, whatever authority system you want to have as a religious system. They all say that theirs are the only authority as well. So if anyone knows their Quran, they know that that's baloney. If anyone knows the, the, their Bible, they know that's baloney. If anyone knows their Mormon Bible, they know that pluralism is baloney. Okay? But yet we buy into it. Why? Because it's so beautiful. I wish it was true. I want everybody. I want everybody to be able to be in eternal relationship with God. Pluralism. Second, relativism. There is no absolute truth. No one can claim truth. In other words, to say this is the truth, it's like, you can't do that. You just can't do that. There is no absolute truth. Uh, Third one, intellectualism. Um, Science, medicine, psychology, education. They have all the answers to life. I just say butter knife. That's what it is. Am I anti-science? No, I love science stuff. Am I anti-medicine? No, I go to the doctor. Come on, man. But is that what I worship? Fourth one, hedonism. If it feels good, do it. That is just like our culture, isn't it? If it feels good, do it. Hey, you have the truth within you. I I hope you're not teaching that to your kids. That is so anti what scripture says. Those little boogers, as cute and sweet as they are, Man, Romans 3, 23, they just got sin bound up in them just like you and I have sin bound up in us. 
And just, you know, you're a blossoming flower. Listen, there's such great potential in, in humans, but I want to tell you only through Christ. Hedonism also says you need to love yourself and loving yourself is the greatest love of all. We should do a song on that. We can make a lot of money and pay for our building, but it's false truth. Think about this. If I wanted to do what I wanted to do, and you wanted to do what you wanted to do because you thought that's what's right, we are in total anarchy. And why is it bad then to rape, pillage, and murder? If that's what I want to do. And yet we buy it. Not all of it. Here's my question. Not do you buy into it, but how are you buying into it? How are you grabbing pieces of hedonism and taking it in and merging it into God's word? How are you taking and grabbing pieces of relativism and merging it into our thinking in God's word? And we've become hedonistic Christians. And I'm not talking about the way John Piper talks about it in his book. See what I'm saying? That's what was happening in Pergamum with some. And, and that's what he was doing. And look what, ha- look what happens, verse 14 and 15. You, you, you do what you hold to. So some in the church of Pergamum had become okay with part of the Balaam group thinking. And, and so they were bringing that in and it resulted in, so what are they doing? They're going to a feast filled with debauchery and sexual immorality. And then they go to church on Sunday with their church family and they're Okay. I'm sorry to ask this, but what were you doing Friday night and Saturday night? And then we come to church and it's just okay. With movies we're watching. Seriously, at what level do we say, don't do that, just don't go there? Doug, now you're becoming such a legalist. Oh, please, 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 let's not. Grace-filled, grace and grace and grace. Right? But at the same time, truth and truth and truth. Because hedonism says do whatever you want. And God says, I don't think so. And if I remember right, the one with the sharp two-edged sword said that. And butter knives don't compete against those. Some were on our screen this guy okay that's what it's talking about somewhere in that situation but but it's so beautiful it feels so good it makes so much sense i get it please i get it it's so beautiful and look what happens in verse 14 So they end up eating food sacrificed to idols and they practice sexual immorality. Hey, it felt right. But what they were doing was recreating the gospel. They're making their own gospel. We're replacing butter knife words with the sword man words. That's what's going on. And so when we embrace parts, not all, when we embrace parts of pluralism, it leads to immorality and idolatry. When we embrace relativism or intellectualism or hedonism, just like them, just like today, it leads to idolatry and immorality. It just does. 
Hey, Pergamum, I brought you here to the principal's office because you have some among you who are presently actively grasping a hold of false truth and they're creating your own gospel. That's the sum. I want to take a moment. I want to talk about the most, okay? Because the text really doesn't talk a whole lot about the most, but there are most in the text because it's some. What about the most? And let me just throw this out. And I'm going to say this. This is a bit reading between the lines. I just want to be out on the table in the text. Here's one of the questions I have. So what were the most doing in light of the some doing what they were doing? In other words, was it that the most were so disconnected and detached from each other? Oftentimes the church in America, local churches in America. Are we so distant and detached from each other that we don't even know that the some are flying into the light that is about to zap them? Hey, most... You may be thinking you're a most person, but do know this, at some time we're all in the some category. Okay? Most. Are you connected with the people around you that you know what's going on in their lives and because we need each other? Well, let me also ask it this way. Could it be that the most were connected together and didn't care? I actually think that's a lot what's happening. Hey, whatever you believe is okay. Whatever you believe is what you believe and you're on your own and you're okay. And hey, it doesn't have, just as long as it doesn't impact me, know this, it impacts you. In a local church reality, the sum impacts the most. We're teaming this thing together. And and some of the discussion in the context of the text is the plural form of when we're going to read here in just a minute when Jesus says, listen, I'm coming. If you don't get this squared away, I'm coming in this. Is it just talking to the sum or is it talking to the whole church? I actually think it's talking to the whole church. It matters. So most, most. Are you in relationship with people such that you know what's going on in their life, not the sin police, but the loving one another, doing relationship and life together. And when we get in each other's lives and we observe each other's lives, are we willing, am I even willing to be the kind of person to step forward and ask questions or to have someone step forward and go, hey, Doug, um, I just noticed this with you. And you know, I, I love you, man. I just got some questions to kind of press into you on. Are, are, are you flying into the false light right now? That's Matthew 18. That's Galatians chapter six. That's loving each other. In fact, let's uh, watch the video one more time. that doesn't show on the screen i didn't know that last service but the most guy way to go dude way to go how unloving would that have been for him just be like hey do whatever you want to do with your own life i don't care if you want to be an idiot and you want to fly into light and get your like life zapped whatever by the way that means i'm like gonna lose some comfort and i've got to like give up a meal and go like talk to you crud how unloving would that be 
to let that cute little guy caught in a moment of some. It's so beautiful. It's just like so blessed and beautiful. Don't go there. Don't go there. Verse 16. Therefore, repent. By the way, I think that's for the some and the most. Therefore, repent. Repent. See, does God sees it? Make a change of mind is what it's talking about, but repentance in the scripture. Clearly, a change of mind is seen in a change of life. The two go together. Therefore, repent, and if not, I will come to you soon, plural, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Wow. Get the idea Jesus is serious? That's what's happening here. Hey, Harvest, we need to be a contemporary without compromise church. We're not a 95 AD church. We live in this day and age. Uh, things are a little bit different. Contemporary, I'm not just talking about music. Hey, listen, if, if you like older style music, that's okay. That's not the issue at all. Contemporary without compromise. Contemporary, it's like, oh yeah, you wear jeans because that's like the end thing. I made a, it's not my notes. I made a thing about it in the last service. I will, hey, I wore a tie last week just just to kind of for people like Chris. Chris loves to wear ties. I respect that. I like that. But have you noticed for guys, I'll just say this, a tie is shaped like a noose. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, I've never been a tie guy. Even back in my business days, I wore jeans. I just love jeans. Okay, that's all. I'm not trying to be funky. I'm not trying to be cool. But you wear a ring on your thumb. Why do you do that? You're trying to be funky. Go. No, here's the reason. Because when we were in Israel, I actually got the ring to go on my right finger. But Karen knows my hands swell up all the time. I have type 4 hyperlipidemia. And my fingers swell up all the time. And I'm like, I hate that. And I'm like, hey, I've seen people put it on their thumb. Your thumb doesn't swell up as much. So I'm putting it on my thumb. I'm serious. That's all, you guys. Okay, we're just not like contemporary from the, what's the funkiest thing everybody's doing? Let's do that thing. They have three people singing up. So we have three people singing. Let's, let's just bag that whole thing and just be who we are. Let's be a disciples making disciples that make disciples church. There's a new idea. Okay. <laughs> Got off track. All right. But, but that's contemporary without compromise. I come from where it's like if you had modern music, most churches were truly generally liberal in their theology of scripture. And yet churches who had more contemporary music, uh, um, yeah, or, or more traditional music were stuck to the word. It's like, come on. One of the greatest things the Psalms talks about is make a new song. They can go together. Plus, I grew up with Boston, Kansas, and REO and all that. I, I love contemporary music. Oh, sorry, let's go on. Okay. <laughs> if you're new, you've just learned a lot about this church. <laughs> hey, we need to be contemporary without compromise, and I've got to wrap it up. Uh, fourth, we need to be a holding fast to Scripture, church. And I'm really sad to say this, 
But that's become a rarity nowadays. How many churches do you go into and you don't need to bring a Bible? How many churches do you go into, they read a text, close it, and then the guy talks about whatever he wants to talk about? Oh, God, spare us from that, right? All God's word. Every word's important, and we love it, and it's the sword. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Different thoughts on what that is. I'm not going to go into it, is it? John 6, bread of life, the blessing of Christ. We're just going to go on. And also, I love this next one. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's also different thoughts on that. Um, I, I Just being transparent with you, uh, the one I like and I think fits the context best, but I'll just be straight with you. Maybe it's because I just like the concept of it the most, so I've got to be careful with that. But I actually think fits the text best is this idea that back in the day, uh, in the Greco-Roman games and various things, the, the winner of the athletic event was given a white stone with their name written on it. They were given a white stone with their name written on it. And, and then at the end of the games was the great banquet. And to get into the great banquet, you had to have the white stone with your name on it. Is that not cool? Now it says there's a name that nobody knows on it. I don't know if, what that is, but I just in back in the day, I'll say this. Hey, if you know Jesus Christ as your savior, you've got a white stone and you have entrance into the great banquet. What an encouraging word for these guys at the end of this statement. Satan has parked his sad behind right where you live. Yet you've got the white stone. It's worth it. For the fame of the name of Jesus Christ. Let's hold fast to that. And let's help each other hold fast to that, right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, this, this passage and for these people who back in the day, wow, they were living in a place where Spiritual warfare was like on the needle was tipped to the top. And Satan was right there. And yet here, these are people who are being faithful. Faithful to your name, faithful to your teaching. And yet, Lord, they had an area to grow in. They lived in a world where there were all kinds of theologies around, all kinds of uh, interesting ways to think and uh, spiritual ideas. And, and there were believers who were grabbing a hold of those ideas, portions of those ideas, and intermixing it, kind of like a buffet of, of religion. And uh, God, I pray we wouldn't be that. But we do live in that kind of a world, Lord. I ask this morning, Lord, for some here this morning. Maybe some here this morning are just going, you know, the some discussion is actually where I'm at right now. Oh God, I would pray right now that they would be reassured of your love for them. 
the fact that you even gave them notice and time tells of your love. I, I pray, Lord, that, that they would see that the light is false. And it's just going to end up in a big, bad zap. And if that's you, I just want for you to know as a church, we love you. This is not a church filled with perfect people. Oh my, no. This is a hospital for sinners. And we're all here as that. And God, I pray we, others as the most, would realize we know what it is to be some and we're probably going to be there one day. I pray we would be the kind of church we see this that it takes together. It takes this unity together. It takes this willingness to be able to see that what my brothers and sisters in Christ are doing uh, does matter. And it matters because we love you and we love them. And so I pray that we would be a church that's like that little bugger who's just off the side. No, Harry, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. That we would do that with love and grace and patience and diligence and humility and that we would be a church that when each other does that for us when we need it that we would receive it well and repent thank you Lord thank you Lord in Christ's name we pray